Welcome to Season 8 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? You want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And we are in our eighth season focused on research and scholarship in the field of leadership education. We've been asking the question, where do leadership educators go for research? So we've talked to journal editors, we've talked to editors of publications for practitioners, we've talked to leadership scholars, we've talked to peer reviewers, those that review manuscripts and uh, conference submissions. We've been trying to connect with as many people as we can to paint a complete picture of this. And I think we did a pretty good job this season. We're now in a subset, a mini series, a summer season. I don't know that we've officially given it a title, but we're in this kind of next phase of our podcast where we're kind of trickling into summer. So Dan and I usually would say goodbye around Cinco de Mayo around the first week of May, but this year we were having a good conversation with doctors Tony Andonaro and Kristan Salente Skindel about their leadership of the National Leadership Education Research Agenda. And in the middle of that conversation, we kind of got this idea like, maybe it would be nice to talk to more people in the, the agenda. We specifically thought it would be great to do an episode with authors from each of the nine priorities. The initial agenda was published in volume 14, issue number three of the Journal of Leadership Studies. Dan, um, you worked on this project. Can you give us a little more background on the whole research agenda? I would be glad to. So as a refresher, so the purpose of that uh, National Leadership Education Research Agenda, or NALERA for short, uh, 2020 to 2025, uh, the idea there was to provide a roadmap for future research and leadership education and it was developed by a group of uh, leadership scholars and practitioners from a variety of different fields and a couple different, well, more than a couple uh, different countries. Uh, the intent of the project was to guide researchers in identifying important areas of inquiry, developing research questions, and designing studies that would contribute ideally to the understanding and improvement of the study and practice of leadership education. In the end, the agenda culminated in nine priorities that would inform the future practice and development of the next generation of leaders. And so today we're speaking with the lead author from priority number two. And uh, just a, a fun fact that we did not record these in order, but this is the ninth one that we've recorded. But again, this is priority number two. Uh, we're really excited to welcome Dr. V. Shanu back to the show. He's an assistant professor of organizational and community leadership at the University of Illinois. And uh, he was the lead author for, again, priority number two. It was titled Evolution and Revolution, Social Justice and Critical Theory in Leadership Education. Welcome back to the show, V. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me back. We're excited to have you back. And uh, it hasn't been that long. And so I uh, just had, uh, for those that are tuning in, uh, check out the episode uh, with V and Dr. Kathy Guthrie that focused on the New Directions for Student Leadership series. So V, how did you get involved with this project? 
That's a, that's a great question. And I feel like maybe I should ask you that question. How, how did I get involved with this project? Um, so I, I feel like I have a good relationship with Tony Andanaro. I, I've attended some of his uh, conference presentations in the past. I visited at the University of Florida when I was a doctoral student, and he was still there as part of an initiative to bring together leadership educators from across the state. I think Matt Sauchek and some other folks um, from there leadership program had written a grant actually to pull all of us together to just really talk about what we do, how we do it, what are the challenges, and to figure out whether or not there were opportunities for us to work together to overcome some of the barriers associated with doing this work specific in the state of Florida context. And I I guess I've become one of those people that once my name is in your head, it tends to stick. Uh, which is evidenced by the fact that I'm back on this podcast again, right? Like clearly <laughs> my name was in your head and that's how I, I got, you got stuck with me as well. Since doing this work at Florida State, I think that's how uh, Kathy and I got pulled into this together. And then we had three additional authors work with us, uh, Tanisha Tevis, uh, Shane Norman, and Chris Corses Zimmerman. And I imagine that a big part of how they got involved with this project as well was both their scholarly reputation, but also the personal connections that they've been able to build through their scholarship, through their writing, through their social networks, and through professional organizations. So whenever somebody asks me the question of, hey, Dr. V, how did you get pulled into this? I never really know the answer to that. Uh, but when I do the uh, the regression analysis in my head, I have some factors that I think are probably responsible uh, that culminate in, in having the opportunity to do this really great work with really wonderful people. It sounds like you got voluntold. When you're good at <laughs> stuff, that's what happens. I know you know how to do this. So why don't you come on over here? Don't worry, you have time. And, and then a lot, they sprinkle in promotion, tenure, sure. all the things, right? Sure. And I do, I do think one of the... So we... Those of us that have had long enough careers in higher ed, we've been voluntold to do a lot of things. What's really the silver lining to that cloud is that other good people get voluntold to do things with us. And so even though it doesn't always feel great to be pulled in somewhat against our will or to be told, oh, this will look good you know, on your Vita or this will look good on your dossier, that's true, right? But I think the true value of this work is both the impact we're able to have and the fact that we're able to have it together. I did, other than Kathy, I did not know any of the members of the writing team before we got started, but the opportunity I had to get to know them, to hear their thinking process, to learn from their very good ideas, but also share some of what I believe are my very good ideas as well, means that all of us got to be better and different as a result of being pulled together by forces that none of us had any control. So that's definitely a theme we've heard from some of the author teams that I don't know how I got here or I put this yeah. proposal together. And then when I showed up to my group, it was, you know, a bunch of different proposals. So we've, we've heard yeah. that. And I think it speaks to the leadership in this space that they're able to kind of see the forest for the trees and pull mm -hmm. together the right writing teams, the right perspectives, knowing that there's going to be some, some, a balance between like the challenge and the rigor and the critique, but mm -hmm. also there's going to be some shared values and and ultimately this idea that that the group you're putting together should be able to work together professionally and effectively. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, once you kind of got into the research around this topic, um, kind of what did you feel like was missing from the research that existed that you that made you feel like this is the direction that the team needed to go in? Sure. I think that when I look at the work that I've done and in cooperation with the other folks who worked with this project, the way that we identified the gap was through frustration, was through wanting to find the literature that we needed 
or that we believe should exist in order to do our jobs well, in order to do the research that we want to do effectively, to stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us in this area, and we could not find them. And to their credit, you know, the people who help shape things like an, a forward-looking research agenda, that's their job, right? If If a team is assembled, to write on a particular topic, to set an, a research agenda. And we are finding hundreds of research articles, dozens of books, countless conference proceedings. We might have the wrong topic here because there are plenty of people already doing this. It's the fact that we couldn't find what we were looking for, what we needed, what we wanted. That frustration and that dissonance is actually the biggest driver of how some of our ideas came together. And, and I want to be very clear that when we when we sat down, the five of us, for the very first time to talk about what we were going to write and how we were going to write it, we didn't agree. <laughs> we did not agree on what the form and the shape and the direction should be. We agreed that there were these gaps in the literature, but then how to pay respect to that missingness was also something we did not agree upon. And so I, as coordinating author, corresponding author for this, there's a reason why the uh, the title says evolution and revolution. There was a party split, essentially, in the writing team. You may, I don't know if the two of you have seen or if the audience members have seen this meme where the top half says, the system is broken and we need to fix it. And the bottom half says, the system is functioning as intended and we need to burn it down. That tension in that moment was exactly what we contended with the entire time we wrote this together. And a big struggle for many of us was trying to figure out how do we marry these gaps that we were seeing? How do we marry these approaches to solving this problem and at the end of the day i think what we decide what i i tried to impress upon the team and, and they agreed with me was we actually can't we needed to write to both somewhat equally and equitably because to say incremental change is going to be enough felt disingenuous but we also had to recognize that we can't just burn down the academy and start over. Not all of us are protected in that fight. And so the resulting framework of evolution and revolution was designed to honor those two competing gaps, but to also say, if you are somebody who is well protected, we need you to be part of the revolution. If you are not, you still have a role in the change. Your change is going to look more like evolution. And again, we couldn't find the answers, right? We could not find the answers in the existing literature. So that's how we decided this needs to be an area where we drive and push people forward because we can't do this alone. And we even we can't even agree as to what the best solution is going to be, but we have some good ideas of how to get there. You know, it's it's interesting that you share that process. Uh, when we, so Dan and I are doing a separate project and one of the things that's come out of that is like those that that started the field and like wanted the field to grow had those same conversations. This is kind of what we believe now and what we're talking about now, but as they're going, it's almost like they're picking up different pieces and there's not a, like you said, the the either or there's not that buzz that bifurcation like we either have mm -hmm. to burn down the system or we mm -hmm. we but we recognize that it's broken and it's not effective it's it's how do we kind of pull in all of these spaces and get people to just even think about some of the things that we're mm -hmm. talking about right because in mm -hmm. in in the priorities you're not trying to solve the problem in one paper but mm -hmm. but it's really putting these ideas out there so somebody else can chew on them and say you know what let me take this piece of it or let me look at this part or i disagree and let me tell you where all of this exists already and kind of putting it out there so folks can have that discussion because ultimately we we want it's beautiful you know if if the 
it's well written, but if, if we're not advancing these agendas in five years, then mm-hmm. it's, it's really about what do we need to do as a field to make sure that we're advancing these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's tough too. We were just talking about, you know, pathways to promotion or seeking tenure or seeking the next position and the systems that govern our ability to function in this environment would rather we not, they would rather we not press against the paradigm that we press against the way of doing business regularly, like the the carrots that are put in front of us are designed to keep us on a very particular path. And so it is risky, right, to say something like, oh, well, we think that the, the academy needs to change and it needs to change in these directions because anybody who agrees with us then puts themselves at risk of harm, right? Because they could maybe not get promoted. They could maybe not get advanced. They could pro- maybe not get the next promotion or at worst start to be branded as, a, you, you know, you're the troublemaker, right? You're the person who's asking the uncomfortable questions. And for us to be able to lay a foundation that says, no, actually, when you are asking these uncomfortable questions, you are doing the job that the field needs you to do, maybe not necessarily the job your employer wants you to do. And you might not have a lot of protections, but we can source you, right? You can point to us and say, well, it isn't me who's taking this risk alone. It's these people who help write this part of this agenda that are saying the field needs this. And if I'm going to work in this field, then I have to adhere to the advice that's been given to me. Otherwise, what am I, why are we here? Like, what am I doing? Yeah. I've got so much going on in my, in my head here as I listen to y'all dialogue around this. And it's, it's interesting because I, you know, this, this priority brought up a lot for, for me as I, I listen intently to folks like you and 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 Kathy Guthrie and and Cameron Beatty who you, who we mentioned and and some of the other folks that are really really pushing us Carrie Priest and and others Darren Pierre really really pushing us in the field to and Ryan Satterthwaite I'm, I'm just yeah mm-hmm. I'm not trying to intentionally name drop but I'm thinking of folks mm-hmm. that I've listened to their sessions and have had opportunities to work with them that are pushing and rightfully so this agenda of 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 critical theory and, and interrogating some of the more traditional ways that we might approach teaching le- leadership and and for you know for someone who white cisgender male teaching in a very 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 white state although I'm Jewish that's probably that's something you can't see I have to take it it requires me taking risks in the classroom to bring in some of these things and to not only create what I I guess consider to be at the safest and, and and by safest I mean like psychologically safe mm-hmm. and or brave spaces to bring in di- now our student body is much more diverse than the population of Maine which is a, a godsend in many ways <laughs> because I, I I get to play in these in these places and spaces with with a diverse student body but it is definitely not a microcosm of the rest of the state it's a it's kind of a diamond in the in the rough or an oasis of diversity and so when I bring in some of these ideas, I'm definitely getting some like deer in headlights and, and kind of Labrador head nod, you know, type of mm-hmm. type of things. And so it's interesting when I get my students to to push back or to to feel safe to identify things where maybe I did I wasn't doing so well at this. And I, I feel like I might have shared this story on the podcast maybe two years ago or something. But I had a student in a graduate level course. I think she was a yeah, she was in our first class of PhD students. So we're teaching our leadership theory seminar first class out of the out of the gate for our doc students and uh she uh, was doing a facilitating a discussion as part of one of our like major class projects around racial diversity and leadership and in one of her closing slides she it, it was an article from I want to say leadership quarterly that she was like focusing on but one of her closing slides she put up a picture and it had a picture of all these white men and 
I knew exactly who they were as soon as I saw it. And she said to the rest of the class, who are, who are these people? You know? And I'm just like face palming. Cause I know who they are. And finally she gets someone who goes, isn't that Ron Heifetz? And then somebody goes, wait, isn't that? So it was the authors of all of our primary textbooks in the class. Now, my my course or whatever was like, well, you know, we supplement. Um, <laughs> however, she wasn't wrong, right? We were using Thomas Wren's Leader's Companion. We're using Hughes, Janet, and Kerfee's uh, Leadership Lessons from Experience for our theory reader, Adaptive Leadership. Uh, what is that? Uh, Heifetz, Graskow, Linsky. I think I'm getting those those authors right. Um, and there's one other text that's not... Oh, and Warren Bennis. I mean, it's like the whitest of the white men, right? I mean, not him in particular, but like this group, right? And so... And uh, she said, you know, so maybe there's some opportunities to, to, to update this a little bit. And I said, you're not wrong. And um, I can't remember if it was, uh, um, sorry, I didn't want to drop the student's name. Um, this student or someone else at a conference very recently after that mentioned that they were in, on like the LMS or somewhere else, were including pictures of the authors of anything that was assigned to kind of not only to say like, hey, these aren't just white authors or what have you, but like, this is another way to portray some of the diversity of the individuals that are contributing to the field because otherwise they're just names on a page or we're making up stories in our head if these pictures are available to us, right? Sometimes it's, it might be hard to, to find these types of things. But, you know, I think back like the our traditional way that we're trained or our traditional approach or dominant approach to pedagogy is like, here's the knowledge, let's do it in, at least in leadership education, let's do it, let's talk about this in an experiential way, but it's not always taking risks to like interrogate exploration of social identities, critiquing what's missing or interrogating systems. This this speaks to the, this priority is like, hey, give it a try, it's okay. Like, let's look at systems. Let's not just look at one particular organization or like what's missing from these systems, whether it be looking at something as, intense as like, you know, uh, systems of, uh, of racism or, or, or social justice or, or what have you. But I think that some of those examples open doors to students going, oh, that's okay to look at that. Or, oh, I've got an idea for my dissertation or, or what have you. And so again, um, this has kind of been a theme that Lauren and I had is maybe not so much a question V, but an observation and kind of a reflection from my own teaching experience. And that requires a lot of work you know, a lot of like, I guess, self-work, but also like really, really listening to to my colleagues and peers in the field and going, okay, this is how this works for me. And let's see how this lands on our, on our students. And I think for the most part, they, they've been, they've been a successful experiments. Yeah. I want to, I want to pick up on something that I think you're talking around, Dan, but you're not speaking directly to. So I'm going to, I'm going to speak directly to it for you. <laughs> Give it to uh, me. <laughs> so this is a national leadership education research agenda, mm -hmm. but your reflections have largely been centering your role as instructor and pedagogical strategy. Mm -hmm. And and as I was even thinking about in preparation for our time together today, I, I started thinking about things like, well, this isn't a pedagogical agenda, but why isn't it? But it could be right? This isn't an assessment and evaluation agenda, but it could be. And I do want to draw attention to the fact that anybody who does this work looks at the words research agenda. And if you're not a researcher, if that's not part of your role, you instant, you may instantly shut down and think, well, that those ideas aren't for me because I don't do research, right? Maybe I do assessment, maybe I do evaluation, maybe I do something in the community, maybe I'm primarily a teacher, but anybody could pick up this information and find a place for it in their part of our field. 
you are right now even talking about, you could use these priorities as a pedagogical agenda, right? Whether that's for a particular class or a program of study or an entire degree direction. But if part of what is going to help make us better teachers and better researchers and better scholars is to deconstruct. So what is the stock of knowledge that I'm drawing from? Who is shaping this viewpoint for me? What does their assumptions mean or what do their assumptions mean for the way that I translate this information for myself, but then transmit it to other people? I don't think that's ever a bad thing to do. It is more labor, but the benefits I think are, are certainly tremendous potentially for the way that we teach and the way that we communicate. But then the the process orientation to that is we then are not just teaching people leadership content, we're teaching them to be good consumers of information. And when you think about how the modern world works, being a critical consumer of information has become as much a part of leader leading as anything else that we do, right? As, as anything else that we do in leadership, but also anything else that we do as humans in the world. And so if if we if part of what I do as a leadership educator or you do as a leadership educator is to start ask is start encouraging people to ask the question of well why would I believe this just because it's in a book written by somebody who I who I've never met and made that's not a terrible lesson for people to learn it isn't necessarily social justice oriented it isn't necessarily one of the core tenets of critical theory but it's not unrelated either and perhaps there are opportunities for us to not just get people to question where their information comes from, what that origination point means, how to translate it into their own lives, but to also say, this wasn't made for me. I need to fix it so that it is. And therefore, when I take it forward, it can be more adaptable, more useful, more transferable to where I want to be able to lead and grow than the way it came to me originally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that whole, um, and, and I think, you know, it's interesting because the, I think the first time I was really exposed to critical theory was, um, when I was asked to, um, write some learning activities for John Dugan's text on leadership theory that came out. It's been like a decade, hasn't it? I want to say it was like a 2013. I'm in my other office. So I don't have the, I'm looking on my bookshelves and it's not there. It's in my other, <laughs> it's in the other office. But, you know, I remember this, just looking at this idea of deconstruct, reconstruct. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, what is that? What is that? I mean, you know, I can take apart Legos and put them back together, but we're talking about theory. We're talking about um, approaches and frameworks and concepts. And, and this, that, this is a whole different, whole different ball game. And, 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 and having the, and it's an uphill, not necessarily uphill battle, but it's a complex thing to do, to model, and to, and I think to challenge learners to to take part in. And and there's some developmental appropriateness or or readiness for that for that as well. And to your point, where and this has been a theme I, I think I've seen, uh, or at least I've observed from talking to some of the other uh, lead authors of some of these priorities is like we we go back to like modeling this in the classroom and modeling this as, as leadership educators, you know, as contributors to some of these pieces that are pushing the research forward, at least the intent is to push the research forward. It's one of those things where like, oh, well, then there's some responsibility there perhaps for us to practice what we preach and to take some of these risks ourselves. And you, you uh, identified or kind of pinpointed something really specific be about, right. I, I mean, I eat, breathe, live pedagogy, right? Like that's, that's my, that and the preparation of leadership educators. That's the two things I write most about. Um, and so as I as I think about those things, right, why couldn't it be about pedagogy? You know, why couldn't it be about, and, you know, we've got a, there's a project kind of like in, in process that we're really looking to like deconstruct and reconstruct the various pedagogies that are used most often in leadership education. And, and as I'm, as I was talking to the, the, 
the co-editors of this text that um, it's, it's very, very, very early stages. We're looking at like 2025 for this, but that piece about like, while we're looking at it from a critical lens, there's some of these other pieces that may not show up. And I think are going to, it's going to be something that we're going to have to really, really push our authors and, and as editors to think about some of the other aspects of critical theory that aren't just about deconstructing and reconstructing what we know about the pedagogy and practice, but in a more, uh, in a broader lens. Well, it made, what you said made me think it's, it's, we're watching these, some of the, the people that we're reading, getting praise for legacy awards and mm-hmm. achievement and co- contributions to the field. And at the same time, we're asking, we're, we're expected to kind of pick apart their work and it feels like, well, for me, it feels disrespectful and mm-hmm. it feels personal and it shouldn't because it's simply their perspective, but also understanding, like I went to Catholic school and I come from an underrepresented you know, a few underrepresented groups. And so to me, it feels disrespectful. And I feel like what the research agenda is pushing for is acknowledging that in this space and then figuring out ways around that so we can still push and advance the field in ways that feel good. And I, and, and I feel like that's the conversation that's been missing for so long. Like I still can remember when I saw my first person of color in a leadership role or my first person of color as a leadership perspective professor just one of my identities but I feel like we're kind of we're there and everybody's like all right looking around like let's do this and now it's we've identified the spaces where we need to look around I I also think and to your point earlier I wish we were in this place where there whoever was in the room was just whoever was in the room and we didn't see the visible characteristics of folks in that space and think oh well they can't they don't understand because they don't have this background and lived experience none of us have anybody's background and lived experience and so i feel like i know it's super like disney like super you know like cheesy positive blame it on the end of the semester and my my appreciation for not having to grade anything for four months um, but I feel like that's the space I know in my mind, that's the space I'm looking for where we're not going into that room, looking at the the division and grouping people. It's like, oh, those people are all interested in talking about leadership. Let's hear what they have to say. And so I feel like that's, that's the goal. That's the space. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear you say, Lauren, about the, the respect piece, right? Because I also was raised in a family of color and my, my family sent me to Catholic school for a good number of years. And so I think that one of the things that doing this work has taught me is to redefine what respect is. And respect doesn't always mean strict adherence to what was written. Uh, I'm I'm going to pick on uh, Susan Comavez for a moment because I can, and she's not here to defend herself. Uh, if you read the original, wait, studies, me. she listens to every episode. I, so I, I, Susan, I know. it wasn't me. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> I, I think I'm I'm hoping that she will agree with me on this. If you go back, if anyone goes back and reads the original Lid studies and reads the the Harry report for the social change model, you will find evidence that says this is what we found. It's not going to work everywhere. If you're going to take this somewhere else with a different group of people, it's going to have to be adapted. That I think the, and I'm using Susan as sort of a a, a figurehead for other scholars who have done similar kinds of work that is simultaneously groundbreaking, revolutionary, uh, mind-blowing, earth-shattering for their time. These scholars are also the people who are humble enough to say, this is the answer I found. It's not going to be universal because everything changes with time and context, and this simply happens to be the one that we were in. And I think that many junior scholars, right? So I think about myself when I was in grad school, I felt as though I had to write things like, you know, this this senior scholar wrote this 
20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, but the world has changed and now we need to update it. And many of those senior scholars, if I said that to their face, they're just like, yeah, I agree. Like that's how they got to where they were too. And so I think in some regards, if if as I am working on my own identity as a leadership scholar and a leadership researcher and somebody who wants to have impact in the field, I have changed my orientation around respect to, to not be simple adherence to what somebody else had said, but to take that as a foundation for where we need to go next, to say that these senior scholars wrote this incredibly powerful stuff years ago. And if we're going to con continue to carry the ethos of their inquisitiveness forward, we need to keep going. No, very few senior scholars have written work that says, that's it, we're done. We figured this out. Therefore, we get to wash our hands, put it on the shelf and say that it is the, it is the end of the journey for us. Many of them will say things like, and we need to keep going and there are future directions for this and we need more data and we need more people of color and we need more women and we need more people with disabilities and we need more and we need more and we need more right and we will always need more because our world is such a it is such a co-constructed multifaceted place where as soon as we think we know something the very nature of the thing that we're trying to understand i also have gotten to the point in my career where I'm mentoring other scholars, more junior people than myself, which to be clear, I never thought would happen. Um, and they have gotten comfortable picking on my work. And I see that as a sign of respect. If somebody can pick up something that I've written, that I've said, that I've presented on and say, you know, Chinu 2020 said this or presented evidence that this happens to be the case or framed the situation this particular way. And they come back and say, but for me, it doesn't work that way. I don't feel like my work has been disrespected or dishonored or that my name has been dragged through the mud. I feel like someone cared enough about what I wrote to try to prove me wrong <laughs> and to use their very good ideas and their very good evidence to say, I stood on the shoulder of this giant. Now I can see further and we need to keep going. So if anybody's out there and you're looking to, uh, to cite me, know that I won't take it personally. If you think that I'm wrong, I might ask you to help me figure out how to get it right. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. And it's interesting because, you know, this, this kind of brings you back to where you do introduce or kind of your response to the first first question we asked you about, you know, this kind of excitement that stemmed from initial conversations with your writing team was that y'all were kind of, I don't know, agitated about there's nothing written about this. Like what gives, you know? And so there was, okay, we have an opportunity here to put something out in the literature and in, in the journal leadership studies and, and, to, um, and, and to ideally make a splash and, or, you know, at least provide a, a springboard for folks after you that, um, and also to your point that resonates with me, like all of a sudden we're like mentoring other, you know, scholars or like, how did that happen? I always equate that, um, the matrix where like they, all of a sudden like, when, uh, when Neo er learns like jujitsu and different languages by like, they just plug the like USB drive into his brain or the, however that worked. And like all of a sudden, like, oh, there you are. Right. Because you've, you've taken that risk, uh, or you've had that opportunity to, to make a contribution, to lead a team, to, to learn while you're while you're doing that. And so I, I guess my question for you is, you know, thinking about that, what, what were some things that you learned about yourself as a leader or leadership educator through working with this writing team? And, and maybe even like, what did you learn about yourself as a, in like a followership role? Gosh, Dan, that is, you're throwing fastballs now. I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't expecting that question. Uh, so I will say this was the first opportunity I had to be a coordinating author among a team that I didn't know well. 
Uh, and so that gave me the opportunity. I'm not quite sure I would identify it as an aspect of leadership or an aspect of followership, but my my background is in mental health counseling. I tell people all the time, I'm professionally trained in listening to people. Uh, I also can be very comfortable in that role, sort of taking in information and making sense of it on my own. But in this particular instance, we were required to produce something, right? I couldn't just sit back in my counselor chair and appreciate people for who they were and you know teach teach the controversy, right? Like we had to take a stand somewhere. And and this I will maybe identify as as part of a leadership responsibility, which was trying to navigate the conflict in a way that everybody could see themselves in the answer, right, in the solution. It uh, it took a lot of patience, I think, and grace from everyone on the team. Uh, so that was certainly something that I got to practice as well, right? Like working with people whose ideas are very good whose track record is stellar, who is sourced in a set of literature that I am not sourced well in, and to simultaneously not feel intimidated by that, right? Just because someone has read something that I haven't read doesn't mean I am less capable than they are. It simply means I haven't been exposed to this. Uh, which also, you know, taking that particular stance on that situation freed me up to say, I didn't know that. Thank you for teaching me that. Here's something I know that you may not know. And I think because we built this mini community of collaborative and professional respect for one another's intelligence, none of us were trying to beat each other down with how knowledgeable we were. And what I get frustrated by doing this work is instances where people want to beat each other down with how woke they are, right? In, in the Olympics of who is most woke, nobody wins, right? <laughs> And so I think in a lot of ways, it, it not only taught me better ways and different ways to be collaborative among a group of scholars that I was not familiar with, but it also taught me kind of the patience and the grace to create good platforms for other people's knowledge while at the same time owning my own expertise and all of that culminating together in a product that I think, based on the last conversations I had with this group, I think we are all really proud of what we were able to put together. I don't think any of us could have at the beginning told anyone what this would have looked like at the end, but I think every single one of us can stand by every word that we put in this agenda to say, yes, I agree with this. Yes, I think this needs to be done. Some of us will agree more than others with different parts, but I think every each one of us got an opportunity to see ourselves in the work, to say the piece that we wanted to say, to push the field in the way that we wanted to push it, to be respectful of one another, and to know that this is not just something that we did to sit on a shelf, it's also not just something we did to help launch other people or to give them a foothold into the conversation. We ourselves, the five of us, have made reference to our own work because we know what it says, we know what we meant when we said it, and we wouldn't have said it unless we believed it was good enough for us to hang our professional and scholarly hats on. So we definitely had the confidence that it would be something that other people could do the same thing. as. like, you can hang your cap and gown on this should you want to. <laughs> You know, I, I love that you shared all of that. It reminds me of when my students, I teach a group dynamics class and in their the class, they think or there's four of us, we're going to split everything up equally. And it, you're kind of speaking to, it's not about like the equity or quality in the space. It's more about, is your voice heard? Are you seen? Are you respected? And more about that journey and that experience, because in the end, the reader isn't going to be able to assign you know, beliefs to certain people, but they're going to look at this effort and say, wow, this team really came together and, and put clarity or, or pushed in their thoughts or agenda around this specific topic. And it's making me think about X. It, the separation isn't going to come at the end. Um, so it, it being a part of the process is, is kind of challenging. 
Um, we yeah. ask you a bunch of questions. I don't have any more softball questions. My last, well, I shouldn't say that. I don't even more fastball questions. Sure. Um, my question is just more, is there anything else that maybe we didn't ask you that you wanted to share? Well, not necessarily something that I had intended on sharing, but your point just now about people seeing themselves in the work. I think that that's both content and process of what we try to do, especially when we're talking about social justice and leadership or leadership education and critical theory and leadership. It, it reminded me of a story of this writing process. And I'm hoping that Chris will forgive me for telling this story because it's, it's about him. So he, you may notice he is the last, Chris Corsa Zimmerman is the last author on this paper. And one of the things every writing team has to negotiate as part of this process is, so what order, what's the author order, right? Like, how are we going to list our names on this? Is it, you know, do we go alphabetically? Do we go by order of contribution? Is it the more senior scholar goes first? And, and so we had to have that conversation and we had it fairly early on and we had it, we had it continually. It wasn't in our first meeting, we decided on the order and then moved on from there. It was an ongoing conversation. And, and I point, I'm pointing out Chris in particular because Chris contributed quite a bit to this uh, final product. And there was a tension point where many of us believe that his name should have been earlier in the author order based on the contributions that he had made. Not that the other authors didn't contribute as well, but certainly the, the, the weight of what he had put forward uh, in our minds would have elevated him to a different position in the author in the author set. And Chris stepped himself stepped forward and said, well, based on my family tradition and my academic field of study, it is more honoring of my contributions to be the last author. And so he specifically asked for that. And, and you know, uh, Dan's question a moment ago was about sort of lessons learned and how, how do you be an effective leader in this space? I had to sit with my own dissonance of, I think Chris's name should be earlier up, but he wants it to be later back. I had to take a step back from my own sort of learned arrogance to say, well, if this is what Chris wants, who am I to then go against his wishes? And so he is, you know, the final author. And, and many of us know when you've got an author team of this many people, he, he sort of gets et alled, oh, out of the citation, not out of the reference, but certainly out of the citation. But if this was the best way for me to honor his contributions and, and the team agreed, the team, if that's what Chris wants, that's what he should get. Uh, and, and so we, and so it is, as you see it, um, but it, it speaks directly to that notion of we can want the best things for people, but best is a relative. <clears throat> and if we're not listening to what they're telling us about how they want to be represented, how they want to be honored, Lauren, to your point before, how they wish to be respected, then we run the risk of running roughshod with our own arrogance over their values. And I think that that is as much a lesson in leadership. It's as much a lesson in research and scholarship. It's as much a lesson in pedagogy. It's a as much a lesson in building human relationships as anything else we could have written about. And it's and it's right there under the title. And nobody would know that story about us we were able, unless I was able to tell it. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to tell that story. And Chris, if you're listening, uh, I apologize. Uh, sorry, and you're welcome. I love it. No, thanks for sharing that with us. And 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 we really really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today about priority two of the Lara and uh, really, really excited to share this episode and your team's work with our listeners and definitely best of luck to you as you wrap up the semester and embark on your new endeavors. Thanks again. Thanks. Appreciate it so much. Always great spending time with both of you. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M R S L A U R J B. That's Miss 
Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at leadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.